0: Traffic, party
1: one, one, rider About four years ago, I was able to fly from Williams down the Napa Valley to Montebello, cross over the San Francisco Bay at 18,000 feet over downtown San Francisco, and then make it back upwind 100 miles into a 50-knot wind and got back to Williams.
0: Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. My name is Chuck. I'm your host, coming to you from the mid Atlantic region here in the United States in Flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 75. Thank you for joining us. Our guest pilots will join us in a few minutes, but first, I would like to thank all of our Patreon pilots that continue to support the show. A lot goes into finding great guests and great soaring content. And thank all of you that continue to tune in for each episode. Please click the subscribe button if you haven't already. Leave us a review on your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to sign up for our brand new newsletter coming soon when you visit SoaringTheSky.com. This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in the high desert of Los Angeles County. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its eighth grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year round to the general public. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.org Kempten Izuno has 45 years of soaring experience in the glider and loves to share his excitement for soaring. From soloing at the age of 14 to about 35, his focus was to own a glider and achieve goals recognized by others, such as badges and records. From 35 to 50, it was about flying long-distance flights. The longer, the better. His longest flight to date being just over 11 hours. In the last 10 years, Kempton has focused on mentoring other pilots in his ASH-25, flying some very interesting flights. Today, he will share with us his adventures in the air and the joy he gets helping other glider pilots to gain the confidence in the cockpit so they can venture out on their own cross-country soaring adventures. Later on this episode, we talk with glider pilot and blogger Clemens Chaipek about his adventures pursuing the 750K diploma, and what he learned that finally made it possible for him to achieve his goal, and what we can learn from it. All this and more, now on Soaring the Sky. Kempton Izuno, welcome to Soaring the Sky. Glad to have you here today. How are you?
1: Good. Thanks, Chuck, for reaching out, and um, I'm looking forward to it.
0: We were speaking earlier, and there's some of our guests that have been on the show that you've actually flown with.
1: That's right. I, I took a look at the uh, podcast. I think Ted Reynolds, actually, he's a, a new co-pilot for me, and actually later this week we might fly together. Thomas Greenhill, James Olaggio, and, and Ben Mays, because uh, I fly out of Williams, so it's a, a lot there. All uh, James hasn't been there in a while, but it's it's a good crowd at Williams. So yes, I've been flying with.
0: The soaring world is a small world for sure. It is. So you're flying out of Williams. So can you tell me a little bit about Williams?
1: Williams is in the Central Valley of California, Central Valley, an agricultural area. So it's out in the flats, which is great because nearby there's a lot of places to land out, of which I've done that. Duster strips and things like that. But about 15 miles away is the Mendocino Mountain Range. So, that gives us these cross country convergence thermal days during from late spring to early fall. And it's quite uh, possible to do a 350 mile out and return along this convergence line without circling you know, between 10 and 14,000 feet, which is fantastic.
0: And then oh, yeah, the in time,
1: we have wave. So, it's, it's a nice variety, and yet there's a lot of places to
0: land. Opens up your options for sure. Nice. Can you tell me about how your soaring adventure started?
1: Well, I started at 14 years old, uh, pretty much always been in California. I started with what was the Ames Club in Livermore, and that's actually turned into the National uh, Northern California Soaring Association, NCSA. Um, uh, got my private there, and then uh, wasn't in soaring for a while, you know, early 20s got my career and going and stuff like that but then got back into it in my late 20s uh, bought a label, and had a label for uh, 20 years uh, got my gold badge in a 126 and i'm up to like 2200 hours now and i'm really interested in long flights uh, and long flights with mentoring mentoring uh, other pilots so that's been my interest and i'm based out of williams and fly i have a
0: partnership in ash 25 very nice. Now we talked about your cross-country mentoring, but also you have some interest in cross-country wave. So how have you put all this together?
1: Well, that's that's a good question. The uh, The mentoring part of my uh, journey, if you will, in the soaring world uh, only came about 10 years ago, but it's a nice uh, fit with cross-country wave. Um, and we can talk about that in a bit, but the uh, the cross-country wave part is, is fairly, is, is newer, but um, the uh, mentoring part has been, I've always enjoyed flying from the back seat. I remember that even from when I was a teenager, we had a Schleicher K7 at the club. And so when I bought this, uh, I bought a share into this ASH-25, at first I was focused just on really long flights, but then over a couple years, this is probably starting in 2008 or so, I really come came to enjoy and sharing given the uh, great weather around williams the ability to do these three four five six eight hour flights with others to help build up not only their confidence in cross-country skills when especially when you're starting out you know there's it's it's tough to believe that there's going to be another thermal and also there's fear of landing out Uh, but to build up that muscle and that to me is what i've really come to enjoy flying with these people because, you know, at the end of the day, it's velocity times time. And you yeah, have velocity. People talk about the techniques and all. But you also have to be able to last long enough, you know, in terms of the decision rate, and, you know, your physical preparation and all that kind of stuff. And to do that solo on your own, it can be done. But that's it's a slower learning curve. So it's, it's neat to, especially with younger pilots, to see when I do that, that they take these lessons in and they work on it. Clear, uh, diligently and I can see them ramp up in their skill sets and, and achievements and that's neat
0: yeah because I think it can be very intimidating you know you are you go out to the airport you get in the glider and you go fly for a little bit but when you start reaching out and not seeing the airport anymore it, it is it's very intimidating
1: well absolutely I mean when you think about it it's, it's rooted in the fear of landing out I mean this is my analysis of it and so What mitigates that fear? Well, the fear then is if I can get the next thermal, then I'm not as worried. So it really comes down to, you know, how do I get confidence in getting that next thermal? You know, both the, you know, sight line of it, you know, just eyeballing it. Because we have mountains, but if you uh, don't find the thermal, you can just go down a ravine and then out into the valley, and there's tons of places to land. But the You know, the idea of going down that ravine, you know, with the ridge lines above you is it's that's very intimidating. So to be able to then take take the pilots along and uh, they're actually doing most of the flying. I'm just uh, asking them questions as to what, you know, why are we going this way or what do you think? And and then to be able to work that and then keep that pace up, it's really developing that pace uh, is really you can see the confidence build and go, okay, all right this yes it looks intimidating but i've got an out i got a plan and when i hit my numbers you know the minimums i'm going to go out and i think i think we i've landed out maybe of the 100 plus people i've flown with in the last 12 years maybe seven or eight land outs or so and almost all of those have been you know very close to the airport trying to get back so i seem to have at least one a year so you know i try to Try not to have more than that, because most of the times I can land at the larger airports. In fact, I aim to do that so I can get an arrow retrieve. Uh, Williams does that if you're within about 30 miles from a from William, 30-50 miles, and it's a you know safe strip that you can arrow toe off. Then,
0: uh, so you're building their confidence, just like your instructor does when you're working your way to a solo.
1: Yeah, exactly. And a lot of it, uh, I once we you know I take off, they take care of the takeoff landing. And if we get too low, uh, because it's a big open class ship, it is a bit of a bear to handle. Uh, I feel comfortable with it, but the adverse yaw is pretty spectacular if you're not used to it. So if I get if we get low, I take care of it. And then once we get up higher, hand it back over to the co-pilot and then we continue on. I generally uh, don't go unless there's a pretty good forecast for clouds, although I've started to do more blue, blue day cross-country when the forecast looks pretty good. And that's that's been enjoyable too.
0: So what's a typical cross-country mentoring flight? I mean, how does it begin?
1: Uh, good question. So sometimes people approach me, sometimes I approach them. Uh, and I always have a 45-minute to hour-long call ahead of time because you know, by definition, a lot of these people don't have the the background in this to know it's it's pretty rigorous. I mean, I don't always throw at the at uh, the new pilot a eight hour flight um, first thing. Especially if I, I ask them what's been the longest you've done, and then I usually double that in terms of giving me a guideline for for how long the flight's going to be. So have a call ahead of time, just going over the different you know uh, roles and responsibilities, what to expect, you know, ask, learn about them. You know, how much, how many miles do you have? How many hours do you have? That kind of thing. And get a feel for, you know, where they're at. And obviously, because we're having the call, they tend to be very interested in cross-country. And just to also get a feel for their personality. Uh, There's been just maybe one or two who came across as too confident. And one of those guys uh, wound up getting sick longer than anyone else that I've flown with. So... (laughs) you know you got,
2: you oh, got to learn. wow. it's,
1: it's learning about yourself so you know but I, I can cover that too so a lot of it's prep and then the day of the flight uh preferably especially if it's going to be a good day i ask them to come the day beforehand and we have time to fit them in uh check their weight you know get them set and settled in the cockpit and then during the flight a lot of it is just a routine of okay what are you thinking now okay well if we if you if we did that have you thought about this? You know, and I can I can just keep talking for the entire flight. So, I actually tell them, you know, if if you, if this is too much and you need a break, then just say so and I'm happy to take over. But most of them, you know, they they push it themselves, but it's uh you can tell after the flight they're just exhausted mentally because they've never done something like that. And you know, I'm not I'm not a drill instructor on them, but you know, I just keep asking the questions and so like others have said, you got to keep on making decisions during the flight. And it's uh, I'm developing the soaring muscle, the cross-country muscle, as I, I like to say.
0: And you take people at all different levels of flying, I'm sure.
1: Yeah. Um, I've, I'm just thinking like I took um, actually a pre-solo student up. Uh, she was getting – she was a power pilot and she was at Williams just a, like a month ago – but just took her for two hours just to show her, you know, how we go from one cloud to the next. It was late in the day and we couldn't really go anywhere, you know, maybe cover 30, 40 miles. But just to really show them that how this works you know, and and working the thermal and go to the next one and just have a basic uh, taste of it. And then on the other hand, I've flown with people who are uh, quite a bit better than I am, like Ray Gimme, a multi-time national champion. And he was the one that we flew my furthest at the time, like a three hundred and. 80 mile out in return you know with no circling after the initial climb it was just spectacular I mean, we averaged 80 miles an hour or something crazy like that so so i can learn from you know other people too
0: so cross-country wave can you tell me about that
1: yeah so the the thing when i first started doing uh, the cross-country mentoring uh my ASH-25 does not have uh, a ballast system, so we're always flying empty. But to have a second person in there, of course, um, boosts the, the wing loading about one pound or so, depending on the person. I mean, I can fly it solo. I think I've flown it solo like twice you know, in 13 years. I, I really do prefer to fly with somebody else, partially because uh, they increase the wing loading. So after a few years of flying mostly thermal cross countries, I noticed, you know, there were there would be some days where the wave would set up because the Mendocinos are a relatively straight north-south ridge that you could uh, the wave would set up where you could kind of run that the lee side of it in a southwest wind uh, situation, and so there was that, and we also have a north wind wave which is after the front goes through, and that because it's from the north, it tends to only work off of certain peaks. But with a modern glider, modern meaning 18 meter or better, you know, you can have, you can push into the wind pretty much like a 50 knot wind and go upwind from certain places. So anyway, combining all this, in 2013, I gave a presentation talking about the wave possibilities for cross country at Williams and said, you know, I I think it's possible we can be looking at doing thousand kilometer uh, flights out of here, uh, you know, given that wave is a pretty stationary lift, right? It might vary a little bit because, you know, obviously the more wind, it's a longer wavelength and less wind, it's less of a wavelength. But we can map this out every season and then start going places. And almost all the cross-country wave you hear about is all crosswind, you know, running up and down the Sierras. Uh, The only point-to-point flights I've ever heard about was Cecil Craig's flights back in the 60s, when he would try to fly from Seattle. He was trying to fly down to uh, California. And so he would go off the major peaks, Hood and, and Rainier uh, and so forth. So long story short, we started doing this and I encouraged other pilots to do it. And I would put out forecasts and whatnot. And so we got up. In fact, James Alaggio uh, was, uh, I flew with him like three years ago and we got our furthest from williams up to almost uh to about 30 miles northeast of eureka so that's like 170 miles away from williams you know just following the different wave patterns in a prefrontal wave and so that became i don't know we did like four or five hundred miles that day three four hundred miles so that was this it's fantastic i love wave because it's it's quiet and it's it's relatively non-violent as thermals can be and it's, it's just different. You're up high. I tend to overheat easily, so I, I like cool air. Uh, but the other part of it is when you have a, a point-to-point flight, like in our north wind days. So it's, it's a dry north wind. There's no clouds. and so But we have known points which have a uh, wave. Uh, this one called Goat Mountain, directly west of the airport. Mount St. Helena is another one. Uh, in the Calistoga uh, Napa Valley area and over the years and this dates back to the 60s people know that there are certain waves Mount Diablo Fremont other places so the short story of it is along with Rami and a couple other people we've expanded that out and about four years ago I was able to fly from Williams down the Napa Valley to Mount Diablo cross over the San Francisco Bay at 18,000 feet over downtown San Francisco and then make it back upwind 100 miles into a 50-knot wind uh, using these points uh, and got back to Williams.
0: Wow. So That's it's amazing. Not,
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not – so the key thing here, I guess, is exposes a larger – my larger interest. I, I want to do interesting flights. They're not necessarily record flights, but they're interesting flights. But to be able to pinpoint this lift and – then when that same weather setup comes again, I say, yep, there's one near Kenwood. There's one near Petaluma right here. I marked it. And sure enough, years later, I go back to that same spot in the same weather and it's, it's there. Oh, nice. So we could just drive around the sky. And I just find it interesting that I don't, I haven't heard anyone else doing this. I'm sure people are doing it, but I figure I have to write an article about this because, you know, people, I think Bill Hill might do it in New Mexico and, there are places you could probably do it on the East Coast along the Appalachians. But it's a—it's amazing, right? I mean, this is an amazing sport. And then to be able to take and do that and map out these points, it's its magic.
0: Yeah, and know that it's going to work.
1: Right, because <laughs> exactly when the um, emotional experience, how shall I say, of topping out on a blue day and then you push forward and say okay because you're pushing into the wind even with an ASH25 which has a glide ratio of over 50 supposedly but when you're going into a 50 knot wind i mean you just the altimeter spins you throw away 6 to 8000 feet in like 6 minutes you know, <laughs> heading for the next point you know and so you yeah. it's just like those acapulco divers that's what i tell people like oh here we go you know this is this is the death dive and you just lose this altitude, you can see the ground coming up towards you and it's it's rather intimidating. But if you know and have confidence that it's gonna be there and obviously you have airports along the way. And then you get there and it works and you go back up and it's 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 amazing. So that to me is I, I just really, really enjoy those kind of flights because it allows you to expand the envelope during the winter time and not just, you know, go up and down in the local wave and
0: now, you've done some flying in France, right, in the Alps?
1: Yes, and in fact, that's where I it kind of got the whole idea for doing the uh, two-seat uh, dual mentoring. Uh, at the CNVV uh, in southern France and in the Provence area, I went there in 2002 uh, with John Good and Jim Norris and some of their uh, John Good's club cause I'd heard about this place. And so they, what they do for guest pilots principally is teach you how to work the ridges. And I don't mean ridge soaring, but in terms of how do you, when you're below the ridge, how do you work uh, the, the spines and gullies below that to get up? And when I talk to a lot of American pilots, cause we don't teach that in this country and it's a bit risky to try that on your own. But after a week or two there, that was the biggest gain in my skill set ever in my soaring life so i i tell people that if you want to build up your skills you know once you get some basic cross country you know you need to spend a week at the cnvv in france uh, because they have a whole program it's state-sponsored it's they got you know, dozens of, of modern ships huge airfield um, it's a great place to go with the family too um, nice weather um, you know, french food and all that it's it's fantastic i wrote an article about it in the 2002 soaring magazine and since then others who've gone there uh, they agree with me going you know that's that was fantastic and, and that's good because it's not only safety but it, it then it, it enables your cross-country skills you know with this compressed training and typically uh they have a two-seater like a, a duo or arcus type plane and then they in my situation they had three other people uh, in the group. They speak English. Uh, they have some English-speaking instructors. And then the other two or three people are in single-seaters. So maybe a- Aventus 2 or ASW 27. Mm-hmm. And so it's a lead and follow. You go into the mountains, and then you, you know, they're on, talking to you on the radio, and you know, you're never more than a mile or two away from the lead pilot uh, in the two-seater. And then you just it takes you around working the different uh, parts of the mountain. It's It's fantastic, and I highly recommend it uh, to everyone. So that's what got me going in terms of thinking about uh, doing that kind of thing um, with pilots here. I don't I don't take them down into the gullies um, and then expect them to dig themselves out. It's more of this idea of, you know, give them the experience, talk with them, work the situation uh, so that they can gain confidence in, in their
0: piloting. Absolutely. Now, your longest flight was just over 11 hours. How was that and where were you flying?
1: (laughs) So that was uh, two years ago with Thomas Greenhill, one of your other guests. Um, Okay. Thomas and I, uh, I've known him uh, as his father flies uh, sometimes out of Williams, great guy. And so one of the most interesting, back to interesting flights, is if you could have a day, if it starts with wave, which this one did, uh, but then the wave passes and then you've got a post-frontal cumulus day. So that's what happened in this case. But the neat thing in that case is that, you know, if you're not going to have wave all day, then at least let's have wave turning into a a thermal day. So we launched at dawn or near dawn, because you can do that on a wave day. And we ran all, I don't know, maybe up to the Hoopa area, Eureka, and I mean, wave, because I wanted to prove certain uh, ranges that were pretty far away from Williams worked in wave. They should, it looks like they should, but, a, you know, somebody has to actually go out and fly it, see if it works. Yeah. And then later in the day, uh, the wave uh, d- uh, disappeared, and then we were back in thermal conditions. And working that transition also was quite interesting because y- you get very few chances in your life to work that, you know, when you're, yeah, is this a thermal? Is this a wave? You know, can't, or maybe you thermal up into the last part of the wave. So it was it was a good learning experience for both of us. And then we kept on going in the thermals, uh, but it was it became windier and the thermals were chopped up. And by the tenth hour, uh, which before this, ten hours was the longest flight I'd have, and so this one was a little over eleven. Yeah, you, know, you could definitely tell we were both getting tired. <laughs> it's, yeah, you know, I would it. imagine pushing oh, for people to you know push their limits while we were pushing ours. And and by the time we made it back to Williams and we landed. And we still had some adrenaline going, but both of us I mean Thomas is, you know, 21, 20 years old, you know, young, fit kid. But both of us, like within twenty minutes of landing, are Oh my God. I just I just feel exhausted. <laughs> <You know>, we've <laughs> been drinking, we've been eating. But eleven hours is a long time to be
0: on Oh yeah. So. Wow. Yeah, eleven hours time. in the air is a long time. It's not a commercial flight. It's a glider, you know? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you're working. I mean, you're not... Uh, yeah, exactly.
1: Not, uh, yeah, you're working.
0: Hmm. Okay, so if we go back in time a little bit, <laughs> how did you originally... I mean, I guess, how did you originally get into soaring? I mean, you were young. You were 14, right? Right. So, you
1: know, at that time, there was... Obviously, much fewer choices for what young people could do, didn't have all the variety and of course not digital media then. So my father, he had flown uh, gas-powered control line planes when he was a kid. And when we were going through uh, Napa, Calistoga area when I was probably six or seven years old, there was the Calistoga soaring operation. So they bought a ride for my brother and me in the back of a 222 and stuffed us both in the back seat. And... I just thought that was just so amazing because I had always been interested in airplanes since I was a young person. So after that, then I built a hang glider when I was 12, 13 years old. I flew that at the the local school. It was a hang loose, uh, if people know what that was. And that was out of bamboo, uh, split bamboo for ribs and polyethylene sheet. And and, uh, it was, you know... Pretty basic biplane, Jack Lambie designed, uh, and actually I decided that was a little too unsafe, and so I was coming up on 14, <laughs> and so I joined the club, the Ames Club, out in Livermore, and couldn't drive out there, had to get rides, but uh, then, you know, went from there, uh, got my private when I was 16 years old, and then uh, you know started taking people up and exploring more cross country, so. Yeah, it's, uh, that's pretty much all I do. I mean, I've got, you know, the family, and I've got a job. I work in high tech uh, in, in the San Francisco Cisco Bay Area, and I soar. So it's a simple life from that standpoint, and I love it. You know, you got to make enough money to keep the, the glider in the air, as I like to say. You know, what what physical force keeps the glider in the air? And it's money. Yeah. And it's not lift <laughs> as people and you know, and, and to have the time to do it—that's the other thing. You know, you could have the money, but if you're obviously occupied, then so a lot of I've I've taken this interest of soaring, and then I try to structure my life around you know how I can have flexibility in the job and and uh, be able to fly and coordinate all that stuff. So yeah, it's a bit. It's uh, I don't see that changing. I mean,
0: no, did you going
1: to be soaring? like you know, man
0: I'm going to back up a little bit, but did you actually fly the hang glider you built?
1: I did. It got about three feet off the ground. This is at uh, our local elementary school, which had a you know very gentle slope, and you know the idea of going, eh, you know, jumping off of a a bigger hill, mm, you know, you know, and when you're a teenager, you know, most teenagers are fearless, and I'm going, look at this, eh, you know, I'm not. I'm not crazy about this so
0: well it's pretty amazing building a hang glider and then actually flying that, at such a young age that's that's pretty amazing yeah
1: well it was funny because another one of my um, high school uh friends uh jamie he built one also except he, he the hang loose was a biplane type design and the uh, most of what people were flying were the regalo kites you know the triangular right, yeah. shaped kites and these are really early days so it's just bamboo as your as your you know structure and then uh, black polyethylene you know garbage can like material for the for the <laughs> sail you know and we flew the we flew his a couple times and it just about killed him so that didn't you know help the help the uh, perception for me so but that's when I decided to go to go to gliders and we, and I'm sure you've noticed there's a lot of ex hang glider and paraglider people who come into the sport too, and they can be just fantastic pilots. And so it's, uh, it's good to see them come into
0: too. Yeah, absolutely. Now I know you spoke about one of your memorable flights. We just talked about the over 11 hours, but you have some other memorable flights. I think you, you did a flight in Minden, right?
1: Uh, I flew out of Minden quite a bit for the, um, uh, in the mid-2000s, uh, for doing the Sierra Wave flights, because that was, I had an ASH-26E at the time, self-launching, 18-meter uh, modern glider, and so I started exploring that, and if you've, if you've never done that, it's just amazing to be able to run up and down the Sierras at 18,000 feet at Redline. It's it's just amazing, you know, spectacular scenery, and your, your ground's going by really fast, So so I did that for about, Four or five years, and then I was a, a safety pilot at Wave Camp. But in two thousand four, things set up f- uh, in March for what I felt could be a really long flight, and it wound up, you know, only being eight hours. But I covered a thousand and twenty four miles, which at the time was the longest uh, soaring flight in the United States. And oh, nice! I it, it just w- went by so quickly, and it was. I've not seen. There's maybe been two or three days like that since. It was just you know perfect timing for the wave coming in, perfect amount of moisture, the right direction. I mean, there's lots of wave days uh, on the Sierras, but obviously, if you want to zip up and down them during daylight hours, it, it obviously other factors have to come in into play. So it was it was just fantastic. I wound up landing at Cal City and. Looking back, I mean, I had like 13,000 feet at Cal City, but I kind of had Cal City as my, my goal. I had done a zigzag. And, of course, in retrospect, you know, I should have just kept on going, you know, just get <laughs> out 13,000 feet, you know, go downwind and, you know, land in Yuma or, you know, something like that uh, to add, you know, a couple hundred more miles. But you know, I had already exceeded my expectations to the point where, you know, Cindy Brickner at the time was operating uh, an operation there. So I said, you know, this is it's it's safe they're friends here and so so i landed but uh, yeah it's i love sierra wave soaring i've been a, a, a safety pilot during some of the wave camps um, when lori harden and soaring and were running that so i love doing that would like to get back to, to doing that uh, another time
0: you flew in france but are there some other areas of the world you've flown in
1: Yes, um, that to me is one of the wonderful things about the sport, is to be able to fly in other places. Um, I've been flown in New Zealand with the Omarama group, uh, and sad to see that is no longer working. Um, But we also have family friends in Adelaide, Australia, and so we've been there six, seven, eight times or so, and so our friend Bruce, uh, he arranges for uh, me to use his or, or what, and he's got Uh, other friends who who've loaned me gliders which is just amazing you know this these other people don't know me and they let me fly their ls4 asw 17 and it's just like amazing Uh, and in australia that particular part of australia it's it's a lot of australia is desert and so is is the area north of adelaide Uh, but because in the winter time up north right which is summertime down south which is when we've been there not only is the Earth closer to the sun, but then, of course, the southern hemisphere is pointed toward the sun. So there's, uh, I think it's like 5 to 6% more solar radiation there. And that makes a huge difference in terms of the thermals down there. I mean, you can have, I've flown there in solid overcast at 10,000 feet, and there were still 5 to 6 knot thermals going up. And I, I looked at the weather going, this is this is going to be a dead day.
2: <laughs> Five,
1: six, nine, thermals to you know almost ten thousand feet going. On. Yeah, right. Solid yeah. like, guys. <laughs> so Australia is lots of fun. I would love to fly more there. Uh, I've actually flown in Japan uh, with uh, one of the clubs there at Sekiyadu and then in, in Europe, uh, both at Provence and uh, Zellamsa, Austria, uh, lovely you know Alps town. Uh, flown from uh, southern part of. Uh, the Italian Alps also, I mean, it's, it's wonderful to fly in Europe, not only because of course there's a lot more soaring pilots there, but to, to, they are much more used to and have much, much more skilled at flying the mountains there. Um, so it's, it's wonderful to fly with, fly with people in different areas, Switzerland. I can't remember some of the others. It's love going over there.
0: Absolutely. Beautiful view from the cockpit in those parts of the world.
1: It, It is. And they, uh, and this the density of gliders especially when flying out of provence along some of the more well-known routes i mean you can often see 10 12 gliders you know on average all the time just because it's uh, lots of people flying so and so you can see why they came up with flarm because when you have that kind of density all the time it's it's uh, collisions are are much more likely i just would encourage. Anyone who has a high-performance two-seater to to actively do more mentoring. I know uh, Paul Remedy does that in his DG One Thousand. John Good does that in his Duo. Morgan Hall does that here, and just to really support that, because to me that's that's where you you know to be blunt, you know you plant the hook in the Newly minted pilot or cross-country person, so that they can believe, and, and it will see them for you know maybe if they can't soar for a couple of years, but they'll get into it later. You you cement that vision that you can actually do this stuff, and they they will they will come back to it. And that's to me building that that uh, base that confidence in our young. When I say young, meaning the people who are, don't have a lot of time in cross-country is really important for the health of our sport. And plus it's a lot of fun. I mean, I just, I really enjoy doing it. And I've noticed that at least for me, you know, I can, it gives me a break, you know, even during the 11 hour flight, the other person can fly so I can eat or just uh, not think about, you know, the moment to moment stuff as much. Uh, but it also is, is a way to give back to the sport. I've been so fortunate to have so many people help me along the way. So to, to really encourage that, it's a, it's a win-win. I've noticed sometimes in the cockpit that, you know, two brains may not be necessarily additive, but two sets of eyeballs are. And so to have you know, other people looking for clouds or lift or birds or you know garbage that's been pulled up um, also really helps too. So yeah, got to have uh, more cross country mentoring and supporting uh, the sport in general. It's, it's, it's the way to go.
0: Absolutely. Anyone you want to give a shout out to? I always like to give people the opportunity to do that if they if they want to. Someone that's maybe influenced you in a large way in soaring.
1: There's a lot of people. Um, probably for especially for your younger readers, who there was a guy named Wally Scott, and he flew out of extreme western Texas in the '60s, '70s, and '80s. And the write-ups of his flight. He he's since passed. But the write-ups of his flights were, were what really got me not only to write about my flights, but also because he was so graphic and gave detail and background and his strategy and his thinking and whatnot, that that really was a model for me in terms of how I look at, at my soaring. And so uh, you can look up articles about Wally Scott. He, he like, flew... At the time, he was flying straight north from West Texas into like Nebraska and Kansas um, in his ASW-12 and, and setting world records at the time. So that was extremely influential on my, my thinking about soaring and, and wanting to, to write about it. Um, had a number of instructors over the years, at different places. Um, and I'd say right now, that probably the, the, for me, the last 10, 15 years or so, the most influential has been the community at Williams. I mean, not just Rex and Noel and Ben and Nick who uh, run the place and who have been extremely supportive of me for some of my crazy adventures. You know, like like they they, they towed me to the Sierras from Williams because I asked for it. And they look at me funny when I have these, these requests. But, you know, so long as it's safe, they'll do it. But, you know, they just look at me like, hmm, not with one of those <laughs> before. Okay, let me think about that. So they've been very supportive. The whole Williams community, uh, you know, Thomas and Ted, you know, from the younger crowd, you know, Gary Kemp on, you know, he's retired from soaring uh, and he moved away, but lots of those people who have been very supportive, and it's just great to have all of this you know, critical mass of skills and thinking people and uh, engaging. Some of us fly together. Uh, Rami Yannets. I don't know if Rami's been on. Uh, has, have you had Rami on some of your uh, podcasts?
0: No I have not not yet. No oh,
1: he's an amazing cross country person um, and so I compare notes with him a lot uh, sometimes we fly together uh, sometimes you know I just uh, recommend a particular flight for him if I'm not in the area so it's it's just neat to have this whole community and of course you know my family and my parents who have been supportive during this whole thing too it's, uh, it's, it's so important to have that support um, a lot of the sport tends to attract loners, uh, which is fine. But to me, you have to have a whole community to help you know, talk about your ideas, and you know when you have a setback and you know, recover from that, um, to be able to you know give you that emotional support, which is so important that uh, you know, a lot of us wouldn't be wouldn't be doing what we're doing if we if we didn't have that.
0: That is correct. Well, Kempton, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's been interesting to hear your story. It's been nice chatting with you.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate you having that. This uh, this is good for getting me to think also. And I got to write an article about cross-country wave here. I think that would I'm overdue for writing an article.
0: You should, absolutely. It's, it's so great, you know, all the information that we do have access to. And for me, doing this podcast, it's been super interesting just as – the guy asking the questions i've learned so much but yeah so thank you for adding to that contributing to the soaring community you
1: bet uh, appreciate the time chuck and um look forward to you know maybe i'll we could cover a different topic um you know i could dive into to other topics i've got a bunch of presentations so maybe we'll we'll do that at another time
0: sounds good thank you you bet Before we get to our next guest, I do want to remind you, Matt Scudder from Skysight has given you a coupon code to check out their service absolutely free for 17 days. You can find that in the show notes. Also, Chris Wedgwood and the Condor team has given you 20% off the Flight Simulator Condor. Condor, of course, is VR ready. It is amazing if you haven't checked it out. And of course, you can find that coupon code in the show notes. Clemens Chaipek, welcome back to Soaring the Sky. Happy to have you today. How are you?
2: Yeah, I'm fine. Hi, Chuck. Uh, Glad to be here again. Um, Join join your podcast again. It's been really fun to listen to all the stories.
0: Well, thank you. You know, I've been enjoying watching some of your videos on YouTube and then reading your blog, Chess in the Air, and you had some attempts for a 750K, right?
2: Yep, yep, indeed. And I finally got it, too.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Now, for those that don't know what the 750K is, can you briefly describe that?
2: Yeah, sure. It's it's basically just you know, it's another. If you're familiar with the badges, it's kind of another step up from the badges. So when you do the the badge flight program, you know that's uh, it's an FAA FAA program, um, and it's supported also, of course, by the SSA and um, it's basically you move up from silver to gold to diamond, um, and to get your diamond um, flights, you basically have to complete a 500-kilometer declared uh, task with a maximum of three turn points. Uh, so you have a start um, and a finish have to be in the same place and uh, have to be actually very uh, very sp- precisely defined. It can only be, It has to be a straight line that's only half a kilometer long. Um, actually, one kilometer long, half a kilometer in diameter. Um, and then you have, at, at most, three turn points. And so for the diamond flight, um, you can have uh, a start, then three up to three turn points and the finish. And for the a 750, it's basically just the same thing. Instead of 500 kilometers, you have to do 750 uh, kilometers. Um, and then that will add to the badge. It will add sort of a, a 750 label. And then there is step ups from there. So this is just the entry level to the uh, to the so-called diploma uh, flights, uh, and there is diplomas for any additional 250. So there will be a diploma 1000, there's a diploma 1250, a diploma 1500, and so on. And um, obviously, the the higher up it goes, the 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 more. Coveted, they become and the fewer pilots that have completed them. Um, But um, so the 750 is kind of the entry level, but that was my goal for the year that I would uh, try and get a 750 declared task. And um, that's the one that I I, I went after. Um, So that was been great. It's been great fun doing that.
0: So can you tell me about your attempts and what you learned from each one? And then what happened when you finally... Completed the 750.
2: Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, um, you know, as I said, this was my one of my goals for the year was uh, to get that 750 declared um, uh, task. And what I what I found early on, actually, in my attempt, is that uh, first of all, the first thing I think I learned uh, at the earlier flights was that I just didn't really take it seriously enough. Um, you you basically just went to the airport and usually as you do in in all of your flying even for the 500 um, you, you usually you start when the day starts to look really good and you most of the time you finish the day uh, when the day is still reasonably good um, versus when you try and get 750 750 takes a long time and um So the first thing, I think when I, you know, did my first attempt earlier this year, I think in May was the first time that I tried it, um, you know, I would declare a task that looked pretty good based on the weather forecast and aligned with the weather. Um, But then I, I, you know, didn't launch early enough or I didn't start early enough and, and really, you know, take a high enough toll to actually get going immediately, but wasted a lot of time. Uh, getting getting up to altitude and you don't have a lot of time left. If you have 750, you actually have to fly reasonably fast. And so, and when I say fast, it doesn't, you don't have to fly like record speeds, but you have to fly fast enough that you don't get stuck and run out of day at the end of the day. And so if I think of, you know, it took me eight attempts until I finally got it. So my f- seven times obviously didn't work. And it didn't work for different reasons. So, as I, as I said at the beginning, the first uh, flights didn't work because I, you know, kind of started too late or goofed around too much at the be- at the beginning, and you know, wasted three quarters of an hour, and that three quarters of an hour was missing at the end of the day, and the, the just the, the thermals died, and uh, there was no way of of completing the task. Um, I ran also I ran into a lot of weather issues. Uh, there were some attempts where you know the sky completely overdeveloped and you just couldn't go on or uh, once that was really scary once I ran into a into a serious thunderstorm and um, you know I swore never to do that again um, uh, to get into, into bad weather. It's absolutely not worth uh, taking safety risks uh, just to attempt a sporting challenge. <laughs> um, and then in some, in one case, I remember one case where, uh, well, I think I did the flight planning wrong. Uh, th- that day was definitely one of the days I, th- I would say out of the seven days that I tried and didn't complete it, I think two or three might have worked. Uh, the other ones would not have worked. Uh, you know, you, nobody would have been able to complete on those days. But on on two or three of the days, I think it might have worked. Um, either had I started earlier, uh, taking it more seriously, or I had done the flight planning better. And so in on one case where it was a flight planning issue, uh, this was a day out of Nephi, Utah, um, where I spent about a week uh, just after the summer solstice. And uh, so that's one of the things you need. You need a long soaring day, right? So summer solstice is a good time because um, the day starts early and the day ends late, and uh, you have a lot of daylight hours and you have a lot of um, soaring hours. Um, but what I did wrong on one of those flights was I did I put the the last turn point into uh, over over pretty difficult terrain, uh, pretty unlandable territory. And then also um, uh, in a way where I would face a headwind on the final leg. And so it's not a good idea to <laughs> to put your last turn point uh, far away from home, um, you know, over unlandable terrain and facing a headwind yeah. <laughs> on, on final glide. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it might have worked <laughs> uh, that day. It probably would have worked for somebody who would have had that level of commitment to try and risk that last turn point, but uh, I just was, I just chickened out. Uh, I could not uh, see myself going up into, and this, the third turn point was in the high winters, uh, which is the mountain range northwest of, uh, of Nephi, it's the uh, northeast of Nephi, it's the, the highest mountains in, in Utah in that, in that range, and I had had the first turn point in that, in that range as well. And it was particularly hard getting there um, and hard getting out of there because the thermals were uh, just super windblown and super narrow and uh, there was a a bunch of deceiving uh, clouds. And so I, I, wasn't, I wasn't super keen to go back <laughs> to that place again at the end of the day and then face a headwind on final glide over, over unlandable terrain. So this was clearly a, a mistake in in-flight planning. I think I could have planned that task differently and then I would have had a chance to, to complete it that day. But uh, that was very memorable. Yeah, uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, I think those are probably some of the key lessons learned from those. Uh, I mean, the um, you know you can make the last turn point too hard. You can, you know, what other things that I learned along the way is that you um, uh, you know you, you really have to detour. This was another day that I think would have worked also out of Nephi. There was one day where I was um, you know between this my. My second and third turn point, uh, I followed the Wasatch Plateau, for those who know the area, uh, to the north, but the the, the clouds were not on the plateau. The clouds were about 30 miles further to the the east, and um, uh, the direct line was over the plateau, and the plateau was completely blue, and um, I made the mistake of just staying on my direct line. And not detouring to the to the convergence uh, clouds to the to the east, and by staying on the direct line, I just uh, I just made very slow progress because you know when the sky is blue and the, uh, you're trying to stay high and you don't know how strong a thermal is until you you know you try and center it, and so you end up centering too many thermals from too high of an altitude because you want to stay high and you just move very slowly. Uh, versus the, the folks who were flying that day who were taking the the, the, the cloud street uh, 30 miles further east uh, when they were cruising at uh, over 100 miles an hour along that cloud street, so 110 miles an hour, 120 mm, wow. miles an hour almost. And so had I taken that cloud street, it might have added probably another 30 miles to my task or 40 miles, maybe 50 miles to the task. Uh, but it would have been way faster than <laughs> um, <laughs> than flying the shorter direction through the <laughs> through the blue and and on that day, I clearly just simply ran out of thermals at the end of the day. I could not make the i could not get to the last turn point I mean I might have made the last turn point, but I definitely would not have made it back home. Um, however, had I followed along the clouds. Uh, that it would have worked too. So I would say those two are probably the two, the two that that would have worked. Those those two days would have worked for sure, had I done either better task planning or been prepared to take take the detour to follow the clouds. And I think both of those lessons were were ultimately critical um, uh, to the to the final attempt when it when it finally worked out.
0: So can you tell me about that last attempt and? The success that day.
2: Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the flight that ultimately was successful, I I think I took into account all the things I tried at least to take into account all the things, uh, that I learned before. I mean, and and that start, that starts with flight preparation. Uh, I mean, you, you really need, you need, first of all, you need the right day. So as I said, you know, you need a long day uh, around summer solstice. You need, the right weather. So you need a day where the thermals start early and they end late and there can't be any significant risk of thunderstorms as I, you know, one of those flights that I, one of those attempts, as I mentioned, I ran into a, I ran into a major, uh, thunderstorm and and this this lightning flashed right in front of my canopy and it was the most, the the scariest experience of my soaring career so Mm. far. And uh, so I'm, I'm not keen on <laughs> repeating that again. So I'm not planning any more long tasks on days with significant risk of thunderstorms. Uh, it's just not worth doing it. Um, and you also don't want days where there's huge overdevelopment going on. Obviously, that will stop you. Uh, you you need a day where, you know, ideally you want to have nice clouds that are marking the lift because otherwise you're going to be probably too slow. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the winds need to be right. Um, then in, in terms of the task planning, you want to make sure that your task is really aligned with the weather forecast uh, and you have to count for the, for the wind. Uh, so for example, uh, it's great to have a headwind early or at least during the best part of the day. That's ideal, right? If you can have your headwind uh, timed in such a way that you use the best part of the day because in that time you can fly the fastest. And you can make the, the best uh, uh, speed against the headwind and then use the other times uh, when you have a tailwind uh, for the, the, the times where you have weaker conditions. So that's great. Um, and then you, you want to avoid unlandable terrain, um, especially when the weather gets weaker at the end of the day, uh, because that will just create so much mental hurdle. Uh, right, so you will be tempted to give up, as I mentioned on this one flight in Nephi. You're you're so tempted to give up um, when the uh, when the conditions deteriorate if the if your task is is over complicated uh, terrain or unlandable terrain, and and in Colorado there's a lot of unlandable terrain. Yeah. So where we're flying is a uh, this is not um, yeah it's not the easiest of of, uh, of conditions. Um, in terms of the, the terrain. I mean in terms of the, the soaring. It's fantastic um, And you, you really need to know in your task planning where you can land so this goes hand in hand with the with with uh, the comment about the, the terrain uh, You really need to have done your homework and your research uh, So you know where you can go um, if things get get rough because one of the things you really have to do when you do one of these tasks, as I, as I learned, is you have to be prepared to take um, uh, sporting risks. Uh, you have to be prepared to land out, in because you will never find a day where the, you have perfect weather from start to finish, and there is just there, there are just no risks along the way. Uh, there, there's going to be a risk of having to land out, and so you have to have done your research uh, and I spend a lot of time um, researching on Google Earth, but also driving around Colorado and visiting sites on the ground, so I know where I can land um, if I if I have to. Um, and so uh, I think those are all preparation needs. And then on the on the successful day, I think I tried to take all those into account. So the I launched early; uh, the sky was still blue, and. Um, The you know so I wasn't really sure whether it would work yet or not, but um, it did. uh, As I got I got off tow and at actually a reasonable altitude uh, uh, and found lift off off tow. Um, And then by the time I climbed up uh, to an altitude where you can really get going in Colorado, and that's usually reasonably high because our cloud bases tend to be in the summer; they tend to be um, well above eighteen thousand feet. And the, the best lift band uh, is, tends to be between 14,000 and 18,000 feet in that, in that range. So you, you wanna get up into that lift band before you get a going on task, also, you, because there is, you know, if, you, if I remember that flight, the first leg was, I think, 170 miles or so. And um, the first, there's no airport at all for the first 80 miles. So you basically have 80 miles or 90 miles to go before you have another airport. so you definitely want to be high uh, before you get going. Uh, and so I, I, that worked out pretty well. So by the time I got up, the first clouds started to develop and I you know they, they weren't exactly in the direction of the task, uh, which uh, there was weren't quite as well aligned with the forecast as I had hoped them to be. So the forecast had a pretty direct line to my first turn point and that uh, that wasn't the case so i had to but i learned the lesson for with the clouds Uh, so you gotta take a detour and follow the follow the 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 clouds when you can and uh, it was not an insignificant detour i probably added another 30 miles to that first uh uh, to that first leg so instead of 170 it's probably 200 210 miles uh, on that first leg but it's definitely worth it i was basically able to follow follow the clouds and uh, for the most Part I think I cruised pretty well and didn't do too much circling on that on that first leg, until I got to um, yeah no and then I got south and this was another interesting one so half of that first leg so the first the last 80 miles of that 100 90 miles of that 170 miles. Uh, were over terrain that I'd never flown over before, oh, wow. so I, I, had, I had absolutely no idea what <laughs> what to really expect. Uh, it just the, the forecast looked pretty good <laughs> that way, so that's why my first turn point was there, and um, and it, it worked all really well until I got about uh, twenty miles to the uh, to the turn point, and um, then I found that about the last 18 miles or 17, 18 miles to the turn point were completely blue uh, over a valley. And it was very obvious that there wouldn't be any lift uh, over, that, over that section. So that the, the lift was all over the high terrain as, as it usually is. And that was maybe a mistake on that planning on this first leg that I put the turn point, uh, I left the turn point at the airport that was in the database instead of moving the turn point uh, 15 miles to the north, which where it would have been over high terrain. Um, And uh, in that case, I wouldn't have had that big gap uh, ahead of me. So, but now as it was, I was facing a, uh, you know, 16, 15, 16, 17 mile gap um into the blue and it looked like there's going to be no lift at all so it's going to be 15 miles so 16 miles out and then 16 <laughs> miles back <laughs> to come back to lift so i would lose 30 some miles um over that over that stretch so you, you basically uh, you have 30 miles without lift so you basically then say yeah, how do you do you do, calculations in your in your head and you try and figure out how high you have to be before you can leave and then how high are you going to be likely when you come back and what the glider issue is that you're expecting to fly over that stretch and you do all these head calculations and then i figured yeah it's probably it probably works um but it's a commitment right because at that point it uh, so I, I climbed up to just below eighteen thousand feet i think seventeen seven or so um and uh then you uh, push out into, into the blue um, and you just watch your effective uh, current L over D and you see if, if you're, what you're actually achieving in terms of glide ratio on the way out uh, matches your calculation or is better or worse than your calculation that you made in order to come back and still be high enough over the terrain uh, where the lift is. And, um, uh, it's a commitment because at that point, uh, you like you mean because it, it might not work. Right. And if it doesn't work, well, you're, then you're stuck, uh, then you're basically landing in Del Norte. This was Del Norte was my turn point, Del Norte, uh, Colorado. Um, it's actually about a five-hour drive oh. from boulder <laughs> <laughs> so, so if you if you land out there it's uh you have to be prepared to do yeah. that right uh, and that's what i say it's a sporting risk this is not a safety risk this is a sporting yeah. risk. and uh, but you have to be prepared as you push out into that blue you have to be prepared that you might have to land at an airport, uh, and have to get have, to, you have to have a retrieve crew that you can trust, that they will get in a car and drive for five hours, uh, probably the next day. So you probably have to be prepared to stay at a at a motel <laughs> for the yeah. night, uh, without without a change of clothes. <laughs> 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 Tie your airport airplane down at the airport and wait for the retrieve crew to show up sometime you know early afternoon the next day <laughs> and uh, and get you back out of there but as it was it actually my calculation worked out pretty well i, I calculated with a glide ratio of 1 to 30 um, through that uh, no no lift gap uh, and I, I got just a little better than that and um, made it back and uh, got back into lift and um, you know was was on my on my way back and then on that second leg, um, going back north, um, uh, I think it worked for the next hundred fifty miles or so. Worked quite well, um, and then uh, there was the the area actually around Boulder um, was it turned had dried out completely, and so that was all completely blue. So there was a, probably the last. 40 miles 50 miles to my last turn point was completely in the blue and um, It wasn't entirely clear which route would be the right route to take and um, uh, I followed the uh, you know, I followed I flew right over the continental divide over the high mountains and it worked actually pretty poorly and and a a friend of mine who's flying the same day uh, he took a, a line over the foothills and I think he was he was he found convergence in the blue on the way north and that would have worked way better. So uh, I made the mistake I went over the mountains. Um <clears throat> oftentimes it works well right that you fly over the highest terrain, follow the spines of the mountains and usually you find good lift there but um he was finding a better line over the foothills um uh, east of the mountains in the lee and um the uh but but i you know ultimately ultimately it it worked out i got to second turn point and then i had to cross that blue gap again to get to my last and third turn point and um uh, there were clouds of just around the the term the the third term the second turn point uh and i climbed back up again to the to the to the max uh, allowable altitude, just on the Class E airspace, and then I just you know pushed out into the blue, and uh, there were some clouds on the other end, you know, 30 miles further south, and I hoped to connect with those clouds, uh, and they kept dissolving <laughs> one by oh. one as oh. they got closer and <laughs> closer because the day was starting to end. All right. right? <laughs> so uh, at that point, it was just. At this point, it was just a sporting, fun sporting challenge because I had boulder in glides, uh, our home airport, so there was no risk of landing out anymore. Um, but uh, I just had no idea whether I would make it or not make it. And for the first 30 miles, it was just gliding and gliding and gliding and nothing, you know, nothing was stirring at all. Um, and, uh, you know, I was following the terrain below and trying to figure out where the, the likeliest... Uh, 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 lift might occur, and i've I found really good lift at where I had hoped it would be, which is sort of there's a mountain you know a smaller mountain range east of the continental divide it's called Thoradin mountain and and that has a west facing uh, slope that was is facing directly the sun. Um, and I was hoping if, if if there's anywhere any lift anymore, that's where it will be. And sure enough, as I get to Thoradin Mountain, uh, I find seven knots of lift. Nice. go back up, <laughs> got back up from like like I think eleven thousand feet back to seventeen thousand feet, and you know, and then the task was made, uh, and I just had to glide out to get my last turn point, turn around, and and glide back home. So that was it was a lot of fun, uh, but I wasn't sure until the very end uh, whether it would work out or not.
0: Wow, amazing.
2: But great, great, great Yeah, congratulations. Fun. I mean, I can – yeah, thank you. I mean, I recommend to anyone to do – I mean, for me, these kind of flights are the most fun Is if, if I set myself a goal and try and achieve that goal. I think it's a lot – to me, for me, it's a lot more fun than trying to just get OLC miles. Yeah. And it's a lot harder too. I think you know to to do a 750 declared, uh, it's probably on par with about a thousand k of free OLC flight in terms of the, the difficulty uh, yeah. that it takes. Because you know if you follow the clouds, it's you know it's and, and the sky it's relatively easy um, compared to if you have to clear turn points. Well, you you got to figure out how to make those turn points on an OLC OLC flight. I would never have flown to my first turn point and neither would I have flown to my second yeah. turn point. I would have just taken different Because you're committed
0: to do it so.
2: Yeah and you learn a lot about the weather too and about the weather forecast and where it might be accurate and why it might not be accurate um, it's um, uh, you just learn I think I learned a lot more from these declared flights uh, and with specific objectives in mind than, than I learned from just you know yeah, fly, flying along the, the the cloud streets.
0: Definitely, people can check that out on your chest in the air, and you have the video.
2: Yeah, there's a yeah. On my, I wrote a write up on my uh, on my um, uh, my blog uh, called chessintheair.com. I wrote a blog about the seven failed attempts, and I put up a video about the the ultimately successful flight. And I tried to to put a lot of explanations in the video, so with different choices and. I'm encouraging people to take a look and see where they might have made different choices than, than I made. And I certainly got a number of comments from people. I was like, ah, you, I can't believe you are not <laughs> flying faster. <laughs> or you are circling too wide or, you know, make sure your, your string is straight. <laughs> people will tell me there's a lot of launch pilots out there too. So they, they will tell you a lot of yeah. things that you do wrong. Many of them, many of them are right. And uh, some of them are, you know, that, uh, yeah. they're having fun too, so i don't, I don't mind. I think it's a I, th- I think the public critique makes you a better pilot oh yeah
0: yeah, absolutely. you have some amazing shots on there too. I think you
2: yeah i have a, i have the, the lightning uh, flash from the thunderstorm is there and, and that speaks because I, I was recording the whole flight on video right so you can't take a picture of a of, of a lightning flash right. while you fly <laughs> a glider it certainly was not on yeah. my mind <laughs> get the camera out and say ah oh, great lightning let's take yeah. some pictures and hope to get a lightning flash but i huh. had the camera running and so because the camera was running uh, it obviously recorded you know and you just and I, I knew there was a lightning flash so i could just go back and and, and go back to the to the recording and find the, the image that recorded the light. And you
0: had some snow hitting the canopy too, right?
2: Yeah, well, that happens reasonably um, frequently here. So, I mean, since we're flying at yeah. those high altitudes, freezing levels tend to be, you know, somewhere usually tend to be around between 16,000, you know, between 15,000 and 17,000 feet. And so if you fly at those altitudes, it's, uh, it tends to, there's a lot of virga here. Uh, so virga is, is, you know, usually you call it rain. It's precipitation that doesn't reach the ground because it dries up. Uh, and that's very, very typical for Western conditions in general. So in Colorado, all over the place in the summer time, uh, even now, last few days, we had lots of verga. Uh, during flights, and if the clouds don't have vertical development to them, there is no risk of thunderstorms. So this is just yeah. precipitation falling out of clouds, and it's typically localized. Um, and uh, and so you, you can fly along virga lines. Sometimes you have to fly through virga, and you get you get snow hitting uh, canopy uh, reasonably frequently. Um, nice. Sometimes even you fly in, you fly in lift while it's snowing, which is also kind of fun. Wow, you, know, yeah. <laughs> uh, you obviously don't want to fly if it's if it's if the visibility is too much reduced. So no. that's what you have to watch out for. Just don't don't get into IFR conditions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well,
0: Clemens, thank you so much for sharing this today. I've really enjoyed this.
2: Yeah, no, it's a it's a pleasure. It's a, it's always fun to talk about you know your flying flights. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, we've had really a great season and uh, yeah. learned a lot this year. So this was just one, one of the many things that, that I learned and it's been a great experience.
0: Yeah, well, thanks again for sharing that. And we'll definitely have you back on the show here and share another blog and another flight that you've had.
2: Yeah, whatever works for you, Chuck Chuck. I'm happy to do it. Thank you, Clemens. Yeah, thank you, Chuck.
0: If you would like to say hi, just drop Chuck a line at Chuck at soaringthesky.com or you can send us a note on the website soaringthesky.com also if you're a pilot we want to hear your story just send us an email and chuck will get in touch with you we hope you join us next week for another great guest and adventure on soaring the sky music for the podcast was written and produced by kim spangler Voiceover work was provided by Michelle Perez. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton.